0: Well, good morning, everyone. As Steve said, my name is Ben. I'm the Noblesville campus pastor, but I'm excited to be with you all here this morning. I want to start today with a question, and uh, maybe one that is uh, something maybe you don't want to answer at church, but the question is this. Have you ever been caught doing something that you knew was wrong? Would anybody be willing to say, yes, I've been caught doing something wrong? Sure, I think most of us would. And I was thinking about that question myself as I was writing this message, and I thought back. To when my sister and I were kids, and uh, when we were kids, my mom and uh, my mom would, would purchase for us from time to time little Debbie snacks as a treat. Now you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Oatmeal cream pies, donut sticks, the star crunch, just diabetes in a box, right? That's what uh, little Debbie is. But uh, my favorite little Debbie of all was the Nutty Bar right? How many of you remember Nutty Bars? And uh, I say remember. I mean, it's not like you can't buy these anymore, but nobody eats this stuff, do they? Do they? Well, we're going to miss you. Uh, But when I was a kid, I loved these things. And and you know that they come in a two-pack, right? But uh, I guess just because we were conservative, or Mom wanted to make them last longer, I was only ever allowed to have one Nutty Bar at a time. Close up the package, put it back. And uh, I remember so vividly—I was probably seven or eight years old. I got home from school, and I asked my mom, uh, "Could I have a Nutty Bar?" And she said, "You know what? It's awful close to supper, and I don't want you to ruin your appetite. And so I'm going to say no to the Nutty Bar." And like so many other times, my mom was wrong, right? And so I went to the kitchen, and I opened the cabinet as quietly as I could, got out the box of Nutty Bars, pulled out the, uh, the cellophane wrapper, and, and again, just you know, trying to be as quiet as I possibly could, opened that thing up, and shoved both Nutty Bars into my mouth, at which point I realized I hadn't been as quiet as I thought I had been, because from the other end of the house, my mom yelled, Ben, are you eating a nutty bar? And with a mouthful of peanut butter, I responded, no, right? (laughs) And technically, that was true. I wasn't eating a nutty bar. I was eating two nutty bars at the same time. But very quickly, my mom was on me. She had found me, and I was caught doing something I knew was wrong. And folks, I'm here to tell you I was, uh, I'm was. i 43 years old now. I still remember that as if it was yesterday. Like those feelings of knowing it was wrong, choosing to do it anyway, thinking I was so smart and I could get away with it, and then realizing I was caught. And I bet most of us have a story like that. Maybe for you it was something innocent enough like a nutty bar Uh, But maybe for others, it was something a little more serious. I I bet many of you, like myself, have received a speeding ticket in your life, and uh, you knew that it was 35, but 55 seemed like a better idea, right? And what do they know anyway? And maybe you got caught driving way too fast. Maybe you got caught in a lie, And uh, you know, lies are so tricky because you've got to keep all of the details straight and every time you tell it and how would I say it last time and you kind of dig yourself deeper and deeper and and maybe you got caught in a lie or maybe it goes even deeper than that. Maybe it has to do with some kind of substance abuse or maybe it was something you did or you said in a a fit of rage or, or maybe it was a failure in your marriage. You know, on and on we could go, right? So many different examples of maybe how we were caught doing something wrong, but do you know what that feels like? Do you know what it feels like to be caught doing something wrong. Well, this morning, as Steve said, we're continuing this series, The End of Your Rope. And uh, this series, we're we're talking about how do you overcome things like guilt and shame and desperation and, and the dissatisfaction that sometimes settles in. If any of those words describe you, I hope you'll be with us the next few weeks as we continue on in this series. And we look to scripture for some answers to some really difficult questions. And the question that I want to answer this morning is this. What does Jesus say to the person who is caught in sin? What does Jesus say to to the person who full out knew it was wrong, but they did it anyway? What, What would Jesus say to a person like that? And maybe that person is you. Maybe there's some sin in your life. You know, addiction, pornography, adultery, lying, greed, whatever it might be. And maybe that thing has brought you to the end of your rope. And you are wondering, what does Jesus say to someone like me? Well, the really good news is this. We don't have to speculate at all about what Jesus might say. We can actually look at what he did say to someone who is caught in their sin and most definitely at the end of their rope. And if you brought a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend our time today. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep one of those as your own. Take it home, read it. It's our gift to you. But this is going to be somewhere around page 746 of the House Bible. Uh, And as you're turning there, I want to set the scene for you. John chapter 8, just one chapter before in John chapter 7, uh, we read that it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, sometimes, and maybe some of your Bibles will refer to that as the Feast of Booths. And uh, the booth is referring to a tent. It's a tent-like structure, and and what is happening is that all of the Jewish people from all over Israel they would travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is where the temple was, and for a full week they just camp out all around Jerusalem, and it was a it was a feast. It was a celebration. It was a joyful time, and it was looking back and remembering the 40 years that that the ancestors, uh, the Israelites, had spent in the wilderness before they entered the Promised land. Okay, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read in John chapter 7 that Jesus had also traveled from his home in Galilee up in the north to Judea in the south to take part in the feast. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, the feast is over. And so we read this in John seven fifty three. It says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, So the festival is over, everybody's tearing down their tents, they've had a great time camping, but but now it's time to go home. But but Jesus decides that he's going to stay. And he goes out to the Mount of Olives to spend the night. And then in verse 2, we read that at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. And so he's been appearing, he's been teaching the people. Uh, It says, where all the people gathered around him, he sat down to teach them. And then verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now let's pause right there, because already there are several reasons why this should seem a little bit odd. First of all, you know, it says that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And you would think that if that were true, they would have caught the man as well. And yet here they are just bringing this woman before the crowd. Doesn't that seem odd? Secondly, how did they catch her? I mean, typically something like adultery happens behind locked doors and closed windows. This isn't something that that you just do out in the open and everybody sees it and knows it. How did these religious leaders know that this was happening? How is it that they just coincidentally happened to be at the right place at the right time and exactly when Jesus was teaching in the temple? Doesn't that seem odd? And could it be that the man wasn't caught because he was part of a setup? Could it be that the religious leaders were hiding in some dark corner because they knew exactly what was about to happen? What was about to happen? And did they even potentially orchestrate it? We, we don't know any of that for sure, but it seems like there's more to this story than what they're telling. But listen, what they're telling was serious enough because the sin of adultery was considered one of the top three worst offensive offenses in the first century Jewish world. Okay? Idolatry, murder, and adultery. Those were the top three worst offenses. And the Pharisees knew this. And in verse 5, they say to Jesus, they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Right? The the law says that we're to put her to death. And, And the law that they're referring to was the Levitical law given by God To Moses for the Israelites. It was to show them how they were supposed to live. The Israelites were supposed to live differently than the rest of the world, differently than the people around them. And the law gave them specific parameters that they were to, to follow, boundaries that they were supposed to stay inside of. And in the law, adultery is presented as a sin so grievous to God that it was to be punished by death, not only for the woman, but also for the man. Again, the religious leaders have only brought the woman, but then verse six shows us a little bit more of what's going on here. It pulls the curtain back as it says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Okay, so that's what's, that's what's really going on here. These guys don't care about this lady. They don't really care about, you know, is it lawful, is it unlawful? They're trying to trap Jesus. That's the whole motivation here. And here's the trap, okay? Here's the dilemma that they are presenting Jesus with. If Jesus agrees with the law and he says, go ahead and stone her, well, he would be standing in direct opposition to Rome. Remember, first century uh, Israel was dominated by Rome. It was under Roman rule, and only Rome could issue and carry out a death penalty. No one else could, could do that. Not only that, but if Jesus says to stone her, how could he possibly be called a friend of sinners? Like, that decision would ostracize him from the very people who he came to love and to save. However, if Jesus says not to stone her, he clearly stands in opposition to Moses and the law. And it would be said that Jesus was teaching people that it was okay to break God's law, and even that he was condoning the act of adultery. Okay, so this was a well-thought-out trap that had been laid, and it seemed foolproof. No matter how Jesus answers, there will be a reason to accuse him. But instead of just giving a quick answer, uh, Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. And in fact, uh, look at what he does. The second half of verse six, it says, but Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. So Jesus doesn't respond. He, he doesn't give him that quick answer. Everybody's waiting for his response, but instead he just bends down and the text says that he started to write on the ground with his finger, and this is this is fascinating to me. There are actually a couple of Greek words that can be translated in the English as the word "write." Okay, the first word is the word "grapho." It looks like this, and again, it just simply means to write. But the word that's actually translated in the NIV that we're looking at today is the word "katagrapho." And that little word kata can be translated as against. And so you put that in front of the word grafo and the way it would be translated or could be translated is to write against. And that's exactly how some translate this passage that Jesus bent down and began writing against these men. Again, we don't know specifically what he was writing because the text never tells us. But that little word kata might give us a clue. In fact, William Barclay points out in his commentary that it may well be that Jesus was confronting these self-confident sadists with a record of their own sins. It may very well be that Jesus stooped down and, and as he's looking at these men in the crowd, he is writing out one by one their sins confronting them with their own sins. Scripture doesn't tell us that. We can't know for sure. But as he's writing, the leaders, they continue to press him for an answer. And verse 7 tells us that when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, oops, right? That's not how this was supposed to go. They hadn't figured on Jesus turning the focus back on them. No, this this isn't about us, Jesus. This is about the woman. This is about her sin. We're asking you what to do with her. But it's interesting, the word that Jesus uses uh, here for without sin can mean even without a sinful desire, okay? Meaning you don't even have to go through with the act. If you've ever even had the desire to sin, right? Jesus taught that if a man even looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus tells him, any of you here without even the desire to sin, you be the first one. You be my guest. You be the one to throw that first stone at her. And then Jesus bends down and he begins riding in the dirt again. And here are these men, so self-confident, so self-righteous, now caught in their own trap because they know that that if they throw a stone, that what they're essentially doing is they're saying, I have no sin, I'm sinless, and everybody knows that's not true. But if they walk away, then they admit to everyone watching that they too are guilty of breaking God's laws. They are no better than this woman who they are accusing. And John tells us in verse 9, he says, At this, those who heard began to walk away, One at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So the trap has failed. Jesus has turned the tables on these accusers, and they all walked away. Now, I want to just pause. I want to pull back from the story for just a minute, and I want you to consider the woman I want you to think about what she must have been feeling, what she must have been thinking throughout this entire you know, scenario as it played out. She had been caught in a sinful, shameful act. She was guilty and she knew it. And she had been brought before this crowd so that everyone would see her and everyone would know that she's an adulteress, she's a sinner, she deserves to die and her accusers couldn't have cared less about her. I mean, her very life is on the line. And and to these guys, she is just bait in their trap. And now as she stands there guilty, ashamed, and terrified at what could happen next, the very same men who are ready to kill her just begin walking away one at a time until it's only her and Jesus left. And verse 10 tells us that Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? has no one condemned you? And she replied, no one, sir. Now I want you to pay close attention to what Jesus says next. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, this is incredible. Without at all minimizing what this woman had done, Jesus once again shows himself to be the one who is full of grace and truth right? A hundred percent of both. And, And what I really want you to notice about his response is the order of what he said. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin, right? I think that order is really important because we would expect for him to say the reverse. If you leave your life of sin, then I won't condemn you. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus tells this woman to change her behavior, not as a condition for his acceptance, but rather because he has already accepted her. And I think that's really important. J.D. Greer says it this way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God's acceptance is the power that frees us from sin, not the reward for having freed ourselves. Okay. So many people believe that God's acceptance is a reward for, for being good, for doing enough good things, and it leads to this idea that, well... I- I haven't done much that's good. In fact, I've done a lot that's wrong and I've gone too far. And if you knew my story and what I've been a part of, then you would know that God could never forgive. God could never accept someone like me. But God's acceptance is the power that frees us from sin, not a reward for having freed ourselves. And I'm here to tell you today that when your sin brings you to the end of your rope and you are looking at your life and wondering what does God say to a person like like me, this is what he says to you. It's Romans 8:1 that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? When you're at the end of your rope caught in sin God says to you now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and you may be thinking well okay that's that's wonderful except for that I'm not in Christ Jesus I'm in sin and so that doesn't apply to me well the really great news is that it can it can And when you come to that place where you recognize your sin and you recognize your inability to do anything about it, you're in the perfect place to receive God's love and his acceptance. And in the short time we have left this morning, I want to show you how this works. How do you go from being caught in sin to now there's no condemnation? And you're going to see a series of blanks and arrows on your notes page. In the first blank, I want you to write the word sin, Because Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? It's breaking God's laws. It's doing what God said not to do. And according to scripture, we've all done it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This isn't just your problem. This isn't just my problem. This is humanity's problem. All have sinned. But not everyone sees sin as a problem. A lot of people, in fact, think it's perfectly fine to do whatever they want to do with no regard for what God says. I mean, think about the woman that we just read about, right? God's law clearly states, you shall not commit adultery. She knew it, and it couldn't be any simpler, right? Just don't do it. It doesn't get any clearer than that, but she did it anyway. She broke God's law. And I'm sure it seemed innocent enough. I'm sure it seemed exciting and fun and no one will know. And what's the big deal anyway, right? That's always the appeal of sin. That's always the appeal. And I bet you felt it too. You know, maybe your sin was something else. Maybe, maybe you stole something and, and just that rush of getting away with it. Or, or maybe your sin has to do with a, a substance that helps you forget about reality and, and you love that feeling. Or, or maybe, like so many in our world today, uh, you engage in the use of pornography. And again, just like there's nothing else that gives you that, that euphoric feeling, nothing else offers that. That's always the attraction of sin, but it's a lie. And those feelings never last, and it never makes anything better, and in the end, sin actually only leads to one thing. And I want you to write it down in the second blank. It's death. Death. Romans 6:23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that might seem harsh to you, but according to Scripture, this couldn't be any clearer. Like death is what you deserve for your sin. Death is what I deserve for my sin. The wages of sin is death. And the woman in John chapter eight, she knew this, right? Again, she got caught up in the excitement and the pleasure and everything that sin had to offer. But all of that euphoria went away when her actions were exposed and her eyes were open to the reality of her sin and the death penalty that it required. I mean, it wasn't a secret, that if, if you do this, if you're caught committing adultery, they're going to kill you, right? And Paul says it's no different for you and me. That no matter what your sin is, no matter what category it fits into, no matter how big or small you may think it is, the wages of sin is death. Like it's that same death penalty. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And the Bible actually talks about two different deaths. Okay, the first is the physical death. That's what you and I probably tend to think about when we think about death. It's the end of our physical life here on earth. This is what the woman in John chapter 8 was facing, right? Her physical death. But Romans 6 points to something else, not just physical death, but it's what happens for those who die in their sins. The second death is eternal separation from God and punishment in a very real place called hell. Jesus described it as a place where the fire is not quenched, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and this is what all of us deserve for our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, was not content to leave us to die in our sin. He was not willing to just stand by and do nothing, and so he offered humanity a way out. And I want you to write in the third blank the word gift. The word gift, it's what we read about in the second half of Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, all have sinned, all deserve death, but the gift of God is life through Jesus. And Paul tells us in Romans 5.8 that it was while we were still sinners that, that Christ died for us. Okay, I think that's really important because it's not like Christ died for sins and then you came on the scene and you sinned, and God was like, oh man, I didn't know he was gonna do that, right? That's how so many people act, like, yeah, but not, yeah, but not this. Like, not my sin, he didn't die for my, yes, he did. It was while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. He knew full well our, what our sin was, what it would be. And while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. But why? Why did Christ have to die? Why couldn't God just say, you know what, I forgive you, and that's that, and we just move on from here. You know, we, we hear a lot of stories uh, about someone who offended someone else in some way. And uh, the incredible story of grace where the person who has been offended actually forgives the offender, right? They forgive the, the murderer. They forgive the thief. They forgive the, the liar who maybe swindled them out of all kinds of money, whatever it might be, right? We hear a lot of stories like that. But the reality is someone still has to pay for that crime right? The forgiveness is there, but so is the penalty. And in the case of your sin and mine, the death penalty still had to be paid. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus Christ stepped out of his rightful place in heaven, That he took on flesh. That he lived a completely sinless life of obedience before God the Father. And in doing so, he became the perfect sacrifice for sin. The once and for all sacrifice for all sin. That's the one who knew no sin becoming sin for us. The blood of Jesus was spilled so that your blood and mine would not have to be. That's the gift that God has given. And he did it so that we could be made right with God. But like any gift, we have to receive it. God doesn't force this on us. He holds it out. It is there for us to receive. But the fourth word I want you to write down is the word trust. Because trusting is how we receive God's gift. Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And a little farther down in verse 13, we read that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Trusting, what does trusting mean? Well, it means that that we confess that Jesus is the Lord of our life. We let him call the shots. We let him lay the path before us. We try to walk as Jesus walked. It means that we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the son of God who took the death penalty for us. And trusting means that we believe that God raised him from the dead, that his powerful Holy Spirit resurrected the body of Christ, giving us hope beyond death. And it means that we commit to living under Christ's authority and in obedience to his laws. And when you do that, When you put your trust in Christ, you can know that you are free. And it's the last word I want you to write down. And it's the verse we looked at earlier, Romans 8, one through two. That therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And when you trust Christ, and you receive God's gift of eternal life, just like the woman in John chapter eight, you walk free. You walk away free. And of course, the point of being set free is not to go and be enslaved once again by sin. No, that's why Jesus tells the woman, go and leave your life of sin. Live differently. But the great news is that when you trust in Christ, you don't have to do that on your own. Like it's not just up to you to to try harder. Christ will give you his powerful Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead and his spirit will live inside of you and guide you and give you the power to overcome sin in your life and the power to become more and more like Jesus. And so if you find yourself today at the end of your rope, caught in sin, I want you to know this is the way forward. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that if you trust him, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be forgiven and you will be free. Jesus has done everything necessary to free you from the penalty and the power of sin. And one day soon he is coming back again. And on that day, the very presence of sin will be no more. Like we won't even be tempted with sin on that day. And we can look forward to that day because we know that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so just as I started this morning with a question, I want to finish with a question as well. Is that true of you? Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins? I want to invite you to to bow your heads and to close your eyes with me. And I want to pray uh, over you this morning but I also understand that, that maybe some of you are recognizing for the first time, you know, as you think about what your sin is, what the penalty of that sin is, and how you, you felt overwhelmed. You felt like, you know, no one could ever possibly forgive me for this, especially not God. God would never accept someone like me. I hope that you are seeing this morning that that is a lie from the devil, that he wants you to believe that. He wants you to just continue on in hopelessness, but that it is not true. That it is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his acceptance is not a reward for us freeing ourselves from sin. No, it is the power that sets us free from sin. God has already accepted you. He has already done everything necessary to set you free from the penalty and the power of sin. And if you are recognizing that today and you wanna put your trust in Christ today, you can just pray a simple prayer, just working through uh, what, what we wrote out here today, those five simple words. Maybe saying something like this, God, I confess, confess that I have sinned, that I'm a sinner. And maybe even tell God what what that sin or what those sins have been. And tell him, God, I, I realize that what I deserve for that, what I deserve for my sin is to die. I deserve eternal separation from you. But I thank you that you would love me enough to offer me eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. And I trust that he is who he said he is, that he lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, that you raised him from the dead to give us hope beyond the grave. And I put my trust in him today. I wanna receive the free gift of salvation that you have offered. And I wanna live differently from this day forward. I want you to know if you pray a prayer like that, God's gift is yours. He doesn't withhold. He so desperately wants you to take the free gift that he is offering to you today. And scripture is clear. It says today is the day of salvation. If you feel God pulling on your heart today, don't resist that. Like you're not guaranteed this afternoon. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed next week. Today is the day of salvation. And so I just want to urge you, if you are feeling God, pull on your heart today. Why not trust him? Why not receive his free gift? Why not today? Father God, we love you. We thank you so much that you first loved us that you love the world so much that you sent your one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And like the woman in John chapter eight, that we get to walk free because Jesus paid it all for us. Thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.